Welcome to the Winning in Real Estate podcast with your host and CEO of Align Ventures, Arnold Olshaneski. Join us as we speak with real estate pros about their experiences and learn the fundamentals of passive real estate investing. Together, we will unlock the secrets of achieving financial freedom by discussing proven strategies and building passive income through investing in real estate. Here's your host, Arnold Olshaneski. Welcome to the Winning in Real Estate podcast. As always, I'm your host, Arnold Olshansky, and joining me today is Matt Bontrager. Matt is a managing partner at TrueBooks, a CPA firm built and managed by experienced real estate investors for real estate investors. Their mission is to transform tax liabilities into investment opportunities. In today's episode, we're going to discuss tax laws and loopholes to maximize your tax benefits. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm pumped. <laughs> Glad we could connect. You know, Matt, I came across a pretty cool story about you and your partner and how you guys started this business out. It went something along the lines of he wasn't able to find a good accountant slash CPA. He kept going through them. And when he went to you for service, he was so impressed by your work that he wanted to go into business with you. Can you tell me about how you guys went into business together? Yeah, for sure. So a quick fast forward, he was a uh, home flipper, uh, really active in that space. And uh, at that point, just got into content creation. And so that's how I found him was on Instagram and was posting that he needed a bookkeeper. So it wasn't even a CPA. He didn't even need tax work uh, at that time. And uh, I come from a strong accounting background before I even did tax. So I was like, oh man. And at the time I was working at a firm as an employee and I just had a side book of business that I would manage. And he had mentioned he needed a bookkeeper. Those are really good fees, as you may know, right? Um, as far as side work goes. So I reached out to him. We hit it off, uh, started to do a good job on his books and then just kind of rolled right into the tax work. If you can find somebody, right? Again, as you know, like who can do your books and your tax work, that's kind of... a uh, uh, the ideal scenario. So I started to do his accounting, then started to do his tax work. And then uh, I had approached him at one of the company parties uh, that he was throwing for one of his companies and was like, Hey, man, we should start a firm together. Uh, you can kind of drive the business. Um, I'll be the CPA on the backside, right? Build out the team. And that's exactly what we did. That was maybe November of 2019. I had quit my job in December of 2019. We started it in January of 2020. So going on year four now. Man, I love that story. It actually brings me back to the day where, you know, when I was about, I think uh, I just turned 20 years old and I wanted to open up my first company. I was a telemarketer back then, just hammering the phones for like 10 hours trying to make commissions, but I was broke. <laughs> I wasn't too good. I got a little better as time went on. And I remember my sales manager, my best friend now, he's like a brother to me, but he looked at me and he saw me running around trying to open this business. I was trying to raise a hundred grand and you know, one day a tear like rolled down my eye because everybody denied me, said, hey, you're a loser. You're never going to make it. And he's like, man, you really believe in that so much? I'm like, yeah, man, it'll happen. And he took $100,000 out of his kid's college fund. And we built actually two companies together through the course of seven years. Uh, that's why I always love people's stories about how they came together. And yeah, that's yeah. a good story for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, yeah. It's always interesting from the beginning, right? You're kind of just scrappy, do what you need to do. So that's Absolutely. why I didn't even go into this with the intention of starting a business, but it just happened to be. Oh, scrappy. Isn't it the, even the word? I was the janitor, the recruiter, <laughs> the uh, writing the sales. Um, I mean, everything, but yeah. Oh man, you gave me a flashback. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. 
one of the things I want to touch on, everybody talks about real estate and the tax benefits of real estate and so on and so on. But I feel when I speak to a lot of people and I ask them, well, do you know how it actually works? They have this high level, like, yeah, it's going to help me with my taxes, but not really the specifics, right? So maybe yep. we could shed some light for people, right? But let me give you an example. Let's say I'm an executive, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. I live in New York City. I make half a million bucks a year. I'm in a 50% tax bracket with the federal government, the state and the city. So they're going to take a quarter million from me at the end of the year. Um, and I say, you know what? Let me take $100,000. Let me invest it into real estate. How is that investment? How is me taking $100,000, putting it into real estate, going to help me pay less uh, in taxes at the end of the year? So let's say that tax bill was going to be a quarter million. Maybe you could give some, just kind of some high level examples. Yeah. So let's focus on this from the operator standpoint. So that same person you just described if their intention is to do this through real estate, which right something I would recommend, I'm sure you would recommend, would be to go into the short-term rental space first. And in a nutshell, what it would look like is, is you acquiring a property. A lot of people think you can be completely hands-off, which that is not the case when it comes down to the tax law. There are ways that you can do that, but we're focused on the individual who, again, right, they're making half a million, would be to purchase a short-term rental run the operation and really be that key component in it for that first year. And this big buzzword, right, in the real estate space and tax base is depreciation. On paper, right, you're never going to go into an investment planning to lose money. So this person buying this short-term rental at the end of the day will take a hundred grand, they'll buy the property, they'll furnish it, they'll get it listed, they'll do all of those things. At the end of the day, you're going to cash flow. You're not going to try to buy a losing investment. So meanwhile, while you're cash flowing, you are going to lose money on paper through what we call depreciation. So if anybody thinks of a general profit and loss statement, your income, your expenses, your net cash flow is basically your income minus your operational expenses, cleaning, maintenance, interest, all of that. When you hit it with one more line item called depreciation, which is basically based on the purchase price of this property, not what you put down, in this case being 100,000, that number is substantial. And that is going to swing your entire net income to a loss position on your tax return. And the best part about this is, is if I can make 500,000 here at my W2 role or my business that I own, and I come over here and I lose a hundred grand on paper, let's say, in a perfect world, those are going to net and I will only make 400,000 on paper, therefore owing less than 250,000, let's say 200,000. So in that roundabout scenario there, throwing 100 grand into a property that I now manage for at least the first year, big keyword there for at least the first year, um, I could drive a tax savings of at least, let's say 50 grand, you know, if my tax bracket was that high. And it is, uh, the most powerful vehicle to tax save as far as um, right tax code goes is real estate because of these depreciation rules and allowances. So, um, but yeah, we can dive into any other component of that because there are, like, as you mentioned, there, there's a big misconception on there or out there as to one, how real estate really helps, but two, as to what they really need to do to make sure it passes on their tax return. There's a lot of TikTok information and, uh, you know, quick videos here and there, but it goes with a lot of context. Those videos, I hope, get people's brains working and spinning to ask their advisor. But 
I definitely wouldn't watch one of them and think that, you know, you know, every step of the way of what you need to do. You definitely would need to talk with somebody about your personal situation. But um, yeah, huge tax savings in this space for sure. That's why I'm in it. If you're a passive investor, right? Let's say you're not active because like, for example, these real estate syndications, a lot of them, you know, they advertise, oh, get tax benefits and so on. But if you're completely passive, you don't uh, get anything. Right. Right. And I believe from my understanding of the tax law, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the reason for that is because you need to be classified as a real estate pro. And in order to be classified as a real estate pro, you need to work a certain amount of hours. And I, I believe there's some other criteria in order for your passive losses, which would be your real estate losses, to be applied to your passive income. But if you're not considered a real estate pro, so for example, let's say I'm a doctor, right? And I'm working 80 hours a week. I don't have time to go manage short-term rentals, right? I have patients. I got to yep. see, or I'm a lawyer, whatever. I have a full-time job, right? And I invest into a syndication where somebody else is kind of doing all the work and I'm not actively operating. In mm -hmm. that scenario, am I getting any tax benefit? No. And not only... So a lot of people throw around the real estate professional status, which quickly, there's two rules to that. And it's not a or, it's an and. You have to meet both of them. For you to be, think of it as wearing a hat or a designation of being a real estate professional by the IRS standard, you have to work 750 hours in a real property trader business. So something in the nature of real estate. And this doesn't mean that you're a W-2 employee at a brokerage. That doesn't count. If you're a W-2 employee, the rule is you have to own at least 5% of the business for those hours to count. So... If you run your own real estate portfolio, if you're an agent, if you're a broker, you, you're a flipper, wholesaler, whatever, you will likely pass that 750 hours. The next piece that everybody forgets and most people fail, like these doctors, we see doctors all the time that will come to us and say, I'm a real estate pro because I spend at least 750 hours. And what they forget is they fail this piece, which is the second test. It has to be more than one half of your total work time. So I don't care if you did the 13 hours a week, 750 hours a year, if you don't work at least one half of your work time. So in your case, 80 hours a week, you better be working 82 hours a week, 81 hours a week in that other profession in real estate to be able to earn that designation. To set a context there, there's been one court case that I'm aware of where somebody was not, or they were a W-2, it was a pilot. And they were able to still be qualified as a real estate professional because their job didn't require them to work 40 hours a week. Because think about it, the IRS doesn't look like, you know, you're not going to work full-time 80 hours a week more than one half in real estate if you're a manager at a department store. They're not going to buy it. And all of that to say, though, being a real estate professional is only one component to that. So let's say you do pass both of those tests. So here is why, let's say in your example, doctor, 500K a year. And let's say this, my spouse is a broker. And now she's a real estate professional, okay? So now as a couple, we've earned this designation of being a real estate professional. And let's say I go throw money in a syndication, okay? And the syndication on paper kicks me back a loss that I'm like, great, I can now take this loss and net it against my income. You can't just because you're a real estate professional. The next piece that everybody forgets is you have to materially participate in the activity. This is where it gets really complex because if I'm an investor in, right, if I'm a limited partner in a syndication, I am never going to materially participate. I literally invested in this to sit back and relax. So that is where if you're just going to go the syndication route and you really want to maximize these benefits, you got to go pick one of two ways. 
You got to start building up your own portfolio that you can materially participate in. So I can say, hey, I got a few rentals that I manage myself and I'm going to throw money into syndication because I know that will kick me off a more X return on my money. For example, I've seen people throw a hundred grand in a syndicate and get back a three to one loss. They'll get a $300,000 loss on paper. So I either have to build up my own portfolio as well as invest in a syndication or my favorite example, I have to earn passive income somewhere else. So great example that we have, it's a client here at our firm. They're a high earning W-2 earner. They make about 300,000 on a W-2. They also own interest in a security company that they started and now play a passive role in from years ago that kicks them off about a million dollars a year, passive. So in that person's scenario, we have two buckets. We have the W-2 for 300 and we have this K-1 we'll say, or passive investment of a million a year. What is rental real estate? It's considered passive by nature to the IRS. So if they go to a syndication and invest in a syndication and it kicks them off a $300,000 loss, I don't even need to worry about these material participation rules and the real estate professional rules because I have a million dollars of passive income that this now loss can net against automatically. So they're not even worried about building up a real estate portfolio and all of that because they're just using their losses from the syndication to net against their current passive income. The problem with that is that's somebody that's very established. When people are starting out, they don't have a million dollars of passive income coming at them. So they are worried about, hey, I just grinded and made 300,000 in my business that I own and run. How do I now maximize real estate to go against that? You gotta go short-term rentals, or if you wanna go long-term, you gotta be a real estate pro, either you or your spouse, and you have to materially participate. I just dropped a lot of tax knowledge there. So pick any part that you want to dive into. But that there's so many nuances that I think it's important people understand because again, it's to get your brain churning. But um, seeing if these things relate to you is really what's supposed to kick off the conversations. Let me summarize this. So yeah. number one, if you're working a full-time job as an executive doctor, lawyer, that doesn't matter. And mm. you're not actively participating in the investment itself. In that standalone scenario, you don't have any tax benefit. Now, if you have passive income from another source, so let's say you have car washes or ATM machines that are generating passive income and you invest yep. money into a syndication, well, passive losses can offset other passive income. So in that situation, it could help you. And yep. another option that people can consider is before you start investing in syndications, well, maybe you want to actively participate in some portfolios where you do some of your own deals, right? Mm. And you meet some of those rules, right? The 750 hours, more than half of the time in the real estate business and so on. And now, since you're already, now you're qualified as a real estate pro, now it could make sense to go and invest in real estate syndications. Oh, and that's only from the tax benefit perspective. It could make sense to invest in a syndication at yeah. any time, right? But it seems like those are the three scenarios um, we just kind of discussed. Let me ask you this, right? The 750 hours, let's say I am an active operator, right? I'm in the game. I'm, I'm meeting all those three benchmarks. So do I need to log my hours, right? How serious is the IRS? Are they going to come and say, what were you doing on you know, Monday, May 5th or whatever day it is. Yeah. How would a process like that work in case you're audited? So good question, because a lot of people get tripped up as to what the IRS is going to ask for and what they're going to look for. 
At the end of the day, it's somebody sitting across either an email chain or a table with you looking at paperwork. And so the first thing they're going to ask for is a log, which we give our clients literally an Excel file. There's three columns, the date, how many hours you did, and a description of what you did. For context, we tell clients, I hope you never need to use this. I hope that no one ever needs to see it other than you and your team and us. If you are flagged for examination or audit, they're going to ask for it because for another context, real estate professional status and passive losses is the most heavily litigated tax section because of how powerful it is. So many people are attempting to do this. And so here's an example though, to what you mentioned is there's a court case where somebody sent in logs as well as credit card statements. And they identified that on a log, somebody said that they were replacing something at their rental property and through the credit card statement, saw that they were out of the country and flagged it. And so basically just saw that they were lying on the log. So the answer is, if you're flagged, are they going to ask for it? Yep. Should your advisor tell you to keep one? Yep. But that's where my thought is, you're either going to have to bear down and fill it out yourself or have an assistant do it. Another way that I tell people is if you have to create the log after the fact, use your calendar re like religiously, right? So if you went to go do something on the property or spend time in something to help prove these hours, at least keep a log of it on your calendar so that when you are creating this log, it's available. Because what the IRS is not going to accept is 80 screenshots from your calendar. They're going to want to see something more condensed, you know? When you have, let's say, the passive investor, Right. Mm -hmm. How many people are coming into your office feeling like they're going to get a tax benefit and then realizing, hey, I'm not a real estate pro. I'm not going to get a tax benefit. Seven out of 10. Wow. But here's what's opened this door up, though. Before the short-term rental loophole, which if you want to get into that, uh, real estate was very hard to really benefit from if you were not in the space full-time, right? Unless you were like the example I gave, where you just already have passive income. But now with the short-term rental rules, uh, it really, that case that you just mentioned, if you can find a way to work your full-time job, if you go the short-term rental route, you don't need to be a real estate pro. All you need to do... So we can kind of dive into that if you want me to explain how this kind yeah, of works. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear it. So real estate, like I mentioned, by nature is passive. So you talked about there's buckets of income. Money you make day-to-day -day is non-passive. So it's in this non-passive bucket. So rental real estate is considered passive unless there's basically a way to skirt these rules and be considered non-passive. And how do you do that? It has to be a rental property where the average rental period is less than seven days. If you meet that definition, you are now considered transient use property and you're not considered a rental activity. So now you've avoided all of those rules that basically say you have to be a real estate pro, you have to materially participate in all of that or at least right, uh, the real estate pro part. So let's say you have a short-term rental that the average rental period, you're turning it over is less than seven days. You are now not a rental activity. The only next piece that you have to play is you have to materially participate. So for somebody that does an Airbnb, you'll buy the Airbnb. Let's say you furnish it, you post it on Airbnb, you negotiate all of the contracts, whatever it takes, but you do not hire a property manager. 
Because now if you manage the bookings and do everything else and you hire a cleaner, you still will be able to meet this test of materially participating. So the reason I say don't hire a property manager is because you can't have a property manager and materially participate. Tax court's never going to let that fly. Again, could you and say say that you materially participate? Sure. Is your tax return going to get caught? Likely not. But in the event you do, bad news for you kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, materially participate is such a broad term, right? So it's it's really people need to understand what their risk tolerance is. If you're willing to stand in court and say, hey, I might've had a property manager, but look, I still had to do A, B, C, and D. And you feel like that yep. could fly. Hey, it possibly could. But that's something that, you know, you have to question your own risk tolerance, I guess. Exactly. So now I look at real estate two ways. If you want to go the long-term route, and have long-term rental real estate, you're going to have to be a real estate professional to really reap those benefits or have passive income. But now the second option of going short-term rental route, the only two qualifications are less than seven days and materially participating. There's no real estate professional designation needed. So it's really opened the door now to a lot of people that are... Like a lot of our clients now are high W-2 earners in tech and they want to move into the real estate space. So if they go the short term, they go the long-term rental route, they're not married, they're not a real estate pro, it's not going to work. Can't do it. You're at least not going to get the tax benefit. Is the real estate a great wealth building tool, strategy? Great. But the tax benefit side, if you're W-2, not full-time in real estate, you got to go the short-term rental route. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the tax benefit side is so huge. It's a big component. It and just to make sure that, that I fully wrap my head around this. So I, I'm going to go back to my scenario. I'm an executive doctor, lawyer, electrician, doesn't matter, right? And I'm working, let's say, 40 hours a week at my job. Now, on the side, I did one Airbnb unit, just one. And I'm managing it, and I meet the criteria that I reasonably feel is considered materially participating. And then I go and say, okay, now let me go invest in syndications, right? Now... If I was to get a benefit, a tax benefit from those syndications, can I apply it to the income I make as a doctor, lawyer, or you know whatever salary that I have, W-2 employee? Nope. So that's the sort of drawback. Long-term and short-term rental real estate are grouped differently. If you want to maximize benefits from syndications, you have to have other passive income or be a real estate pro and have your own portfolio of long-term, not short-term. Right. So by having the short-term rental, how does that actually help the full-time executive with taxes? So, right. The executive makes half a million. They buy this short-term rental. All they have to do is meet that less than seven days and materially participate. Obviously, you're going to drive the tax loss because that's another thing, right? Like, you're going to drive the tax loss through the depreciation that you take, doing a cost segregation study and all that. So the way that they're going to benefit from it is on paper, that property will lose money. And now we know. So now it's how do we net these two things together? Well, they're in separate buckets, right? Originally, but then you go, wait, it's less than seven days. So it's not passive. It's actually over on this side now. And the, the only other checkbox is, did I materially participate? That answer is yes, then I'm good. And there are seven tests to material participation. You only have to meet one of them. And the one that usually in that case that they'll meet is 100 hours on the activity and more than anybody else. So that's where we say, you can hire a cleaner, um, any, right, something else. But if they do more work than you, then that test is going to fail. 
but that's exactly how it would help them. So notice how you're avoiding needing to be a real estate pro uh, and all of that, but you will have to meet the less than seven days and materially participate still. So that's why I tell people, if you go long-term or short-term, you will have to materially participate, which is having some sort of skin in the game. That's the IRS's rule of basically saying, hey, you want to take these losses from real estate, you're going to have to show us that you're either full-time in this game or you're really not considered a rental, which is the short-term piece uh, by skirting that definition, but you still materially participate. They want to see that you're involved. Great point. So many different variations. And I feel like we covered quite a bit of them, you know, and yeah. speaking about all these loopholes and twists, um, one of the things I came across, you know, your website, it talks about the five tax loopholes in 2022. Now I know we're in 2023 now, but I'm sure some of them have rolled over. Uh, can you share with our listeners what some of those are? Maybe some of the more important ones. Yeah. The first one, honestly, would be somewhat something that I think skirts right under like other people's noses is accounting. And so being an accountant before I was in taxes, I got a real love for numbers and seeing financial statements and understanding the health of these companies and stuff. But so many people don't do their own bookkeeping. They don't use QuickBooks. They just think that they can use a spreadsheet, which a spreadsheet can work. But the problem with it is, think of it, if you're in the 30% tax bracket, every dollar of a deduction you miss, it's another 30 cents in tax you're paying. In your case, in 50%, 50 cents. So missed deductions is by far one of the best tax strategies is to buckle down and find out where you're spending your money and finding out what else can I write off that, um, right, in this day and age with people working remote, so many things that you pay for can be used for both business and, right, my personal life. So Missed deductions is number one for sure. Um, then we obviously have the real estate aspects and those kind of things. But another one for uh, small business owners is the Augusta rule, which I would think I've seen it a million times online and I'm still surprised as to how many people don't know what that is. But long story short is, is if you run a business, you can utilize your home space, your home to hold business meetings. And basically the rent that your business is paying you to use your home is tax-free. And it's an expense to your business. So it's really a double whammy there. And funny enough, that was created because, right, for the golf listeners out there, the Augusta, right, Masters Tournament in Georgia, people were renting out their homes for that short period of time during the tournament and because they wanted to receive some rental income. And so basically, the rule states that you can rent your home out for 14 days or less, and it's tax-free. So... Yeah, way to utilize that is with your business. So now you're not only getting a deduction for it from your business, but now you're receiving tax-free income really from yourself, but you're also getting a deduction for it. Let me ask you a question about that, right? So yeah. I, I remember, if, for example, at one point, the way uh, travel and entertainment was looked at was, you know, if, if you had a $1,000 entertainment bill or dinner with a client, they would mm -hmm. only allow you to write off 50% because in the IRS's viewpoint, well, you ate the other half of the meal. Now, obviously, if you were with more people, you could say, I only ate 20% of that and, and so on. So with the Augusta rule, right, if, if you do use that, right, to hold meetings in your home, does the IRS ask, well, how much of, how much of the time did you use your home for business and will they apply a percentage or... Is it kind of something they don't look at where you could just write the whole thing off? No. So in this case, whatever amount you deem, you're writing off the entire amount. But I see where you're getting with that because you're going to have to come up with what that amount is. So what do I think one day's worth of, let's say, an eight-hour day is worth to rent my home? How do I find that? 
I see what other space in the area costs, right? And I can basically run the comp to test it. But the entire amount is deductible once you determine what that is. Obviously, you have to factor in your home size. Are you using the entire house or are you using just a part of the house and things like that? But yeah, no, uh, you get the full thing. You know, a big perspective that a lot of people have is like, hey, I'm going to take more risk. I'll just write off 100% of this. And if the IRS ever questions it, and I say I made a mistake, you know what, then I'm just going to pay my 20% penalty or something mm-hmm. like that. That's how some people's risk tolerance is as well from, you know, and n- nothing wrong with one or the other, right? Exactly. No, yeah. Because at the end of the day, what's going to happen is assuming you're not grossly negligent and really trying to just commit fraud, it's going to get disallowed. And then they're going to basically convert it back, take away your deduction, and you're going to owe amount of tax on the difference, right? So that's likely what is what should happen in that case. But you bring up a good one too, because meals, man, last year meals were 100%. So I hope everybody- right. took Yeah, that was huge in the tax yeah. world. Yeah, COVID, because I believe it's- uh, COVID. Because of COVID, right? But by yeah. the way, is it still 100% write-off on meals and entertainment or did they take it back to 50? Back to 50. And remember, entertainment is no longer deductible. It's only Ooh. meals. So if you go out to a ball game, the tickets that you buy, but here's the quirk with this. If you buy your entire team tickets to something, that can be an expense because it's a team outing. If you go one-on-one with a colleague somewhere or a potential client and you pay for tickets, the tickets are not deductible, but your meals and your drinks and things like that are. Everybody listening to this, I hope you write this stuff down and go test your accountants. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go back before, before we publish this episode, I'm going to go back to my CPA and say, Hey, by the way, how's this work? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, I want to talk to you about various tax laws on the horizon that could potentially Mm -hmm. affect the valuations of real estate. So for example, God knows how long it's been going on already various political parties come in and they, they, they try to get rid of or alter 1031 exchanges, right? And as you and I both know, if something like that happens, it's it's probably going to hurt evaluations. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are there any other tax laws on the horizon or even being whispered out there that you feel investors should, um, you know, should keep their finger on the pulse on? So the one you were bringing up was big and it was shocking the tax world pretty heavily, which was again, the 1031 exchange. For those of you listening that don't know what that is, you've had property A for years. You want to sell property A because you have a big gain. The idea is you sell property A, you don't touch any of the proceeds, you roll them right into the next investment. And you can just basically say, hey, IRS, I didn't take any profit from this. And I'm going to basically defer my tax gain and not pay any tax, which that's what the 1031 is. So 1031 is still here to stay. Right. So people are feeling now, especially this year is the first year that I think everybody should watch for because the planning will change every year is depreciation bonus amounts. So when I buy, for ease of example, I buy a $100,000 vehicle or something I can depreciate, right? It used to be I could take 50% of that as a max depreciable amount in the first year. So $100,000 vehicle, I could write off, right? 50,000 of that. When the Tax Cuts Jobs Act came out, it put bonus depreciation to 100%. So it was literally the years to just ball out and buy new equipment, increase the portfolio on the rental side, right? Commercial side, whichever. Because depreciation now was so high that you were driving huge tax losses. So 
That stayed at 100% for a few years and is now, this is the first year that it has begun to sunset 20% per year. So I literally just had a tax planning call yesterday talking to somebody about bonus depreciating a fourplex that they had. And it was in service last year. So last year, you still could take 100% bonus depreciation on certain items. So for example, if I buy a rental property and I put 20 grand into it worth of cabinetry and carpets and paint, I don't have to take that over, let's say, five years and depreciate it. I could, right year one, take 20000 in year one as an expense. That now this year has gone down to 80%. So it's the first year that we're seeing this sunset go down by 20%. And again, is set next year to go to 60, then 40, then 20, and phase out. I think it's by 27. So do I think it's going to go to zero? No. I think by then the rules will change again. And so a lot of people now are even freaking out because it's 80. But I'm like, you have to remember that just years ago, it was only 50. So there's still a big opportunity, but it's really something you got to watch for. Because like you said, from the valuation standpoint, now people buying these assets, their after-tax return on investment isn't as high as it used to be because you're not getting the expenses you used to. But still something to take big advantage of because it's still 80%. That's huge. So we're dealing with that 100% was just around for a few years and people loved it, but you still need to take massive advantage of the 80. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, when it's at 100%, it helps evaluations, right? Because now transactions make more sense. Hey, I'm getting more of a tax benefit. My after-tax returns are higher. And, you know, when it goes down, the reverse is true. So it's a great thing to keep an eye out for. Now, you said it's going down to 80, which, you know, I was familiar with that. Now, are you saying it's already guaranteed to go to 60 a year after? Yep. So it's going to sunset to zero by, so what is this? Yeah. Three would be 60, or I'm sorry, 80. Uh, four would be 60. Five would be 40. Six would be 20. Seven would be zero. Yeah. So 2027, it's it's set to sunset to zero. And those rules are already in effect. So that is where my guess, some sort of legislation, presidential change, whatever, will come in and change these rules to either start back at 100%, go back to 50. I would be surprised for it to ever get to 40, right? Because we were in an environment that it used to be 50. Then we rode the highs and we're at 100. And everybody's like, yes, this is great. Now we're down to 80. People are somewhat spooked, but I'm like, this is still a big advantage here that people need to be taking it right, like advantage of. So my thoughts are, do I see it even making it below 50 by the time things are changed? Probably not. Mm. So let's say, for example, worst case scenario, right? Doomsday, it goes to zero. Now I put 20,000 to fix the boiler. How does my write-offs work now? Let's say I have zero bonus depreciation. Essentially, am I waiting through the course of 27 years? So it depends on what kind of asset. 27 years, like you mentioned, that's for a single family home. So like the actual structure of it. If it's something like, again, cabinetry, flooring, boiler, like what you said, that's likely five years. So you'll get a $4,000 deduction in the first year. So you still get your deductions. You're still going to get all your deductions. You're just going to need to space them out. Over more time. Exactly. You're not going to be able to lock it up in that first year, which is, again, how these people are driving big tax losses and... Right, like the whole name of the game here in the real estate side. Absolutely, right? Even 1031 exchanges, right? It's just keep it kicking the bucket down the road, right? Exactly. Uh, yep. And then defer, defer, defer. Defer, defer, defer. And then you have a whole bunch of inheritance lawyers that come in and yeah. <laughs> now you're having now you're having yeah. different conversations. So mm-hmm. but yeah. yeah, that's why a lot of big real estate guys uh, they don't pay any taxes. Oh. 
For sure. Yeah. We have clients all the time that will pay zero in federal tax because of their real estate portfolios. And a lot of people think that pushing your problems off uh, is a bad thing, which I guess I would I would agree that in general, in, in life and doing that is bad, but pushing your taxes off to deal with them later is exactly what we want to do sometimes. Yeah. 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 For, for sure. Because now you have the money on hand today, right? And there's opportunity when you have money. Right? Exactly. If, if you're paying it in taxes, you might not be able to invest it into A, B, or C. So mm-hmm. besides the depreciation, is there anything else that you think people should watch out for? Nothing that I would necessarily watch for now. Honestly, if if people left with one thing, it would be the accounting portion. So if you are that high W-2 earner or you're starting something on the side, keeping track of the numbers so that when you do meet with an advisor, you can actually have real conversations. That's what's going to give you the most benefit because I mean, I can't tell you enough how many people come to us and they want to do tax planning. And we go, okay, like, you know, where are you at? What's your sort of baseline? And they have nothing. And it's like, you can't tax plan without that information. So if you want to get the most out of it, you got to be able to be organized with the documents that you have and like basically your financial picture. Right. So to summarize, we covered quite a lot of ground today, but the high level takeaways that I'm walking away with is number one is understand that if you're working a full-time job and you're not actively participating, you're not going to get a tax benefit investing in real estate and having somebody else run it. And there's a whole bunch of different ways where you could actively participate and get some of that benefit. I think that's a big takeaway that a lot of people, there's a big misconception on. Number two is, you know, the depreciation schedule, right? It makes the returns a little less exciting in real estate when it goes down. So that could drive evaluations. Well, that's definitely going to hurt evaluations, right? But there's Mm -hmm. so many other factors in real estate that could drive it up. So it's not like it's just one variable. Also, make sure that you got 100% write-off on your T&E during COVID. Entertainment is no longer a write-off. So yep. if you have to decide whether to take a client to dinner or to a ball game, take them <laughs> take him to dinner. Take him to dinner. And that's back at 50%. And in the meantime, we have nothing to worry about in regards to 1031 exchanges. I think you're good there. So I feel we covered a lot. I have to say, I love the way you were able to take something so complex, which, you know, sometimes when I would speak with CPA and accountants, just my <laughs> head, my head would just hurt. I'd walk out. <laughs> I, I need yeah. I I need a massage. I need a drink. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 need, I need both at the same time. But you know, yeah. for, for you to be able to take such a complex matter and summarize it in this neat way for people to walk away with these actionable insights, I really appreciate it. Uh, I know our listeners appreciate it. Uh, and with that said, I'd like to jump into our closing questions. Um, yeah, let's do it. The first one is, what is the most valuable lesson uh, you learned in your professional or investing career? Professional would be more so specific to growing this firm. It was me doing it all for the first year. And now we're up to, we just hired our probably 19th employee would be, you can't do everything alone. And it's scary when you really think about, you don't know what you don't know. And I think about that from a tax advisor standpoint. So, you know, when you want to really sit down and learn about your tax situation, don't go at it yourself. Find, you know, find somebody that understands your situation and your industry and hire that help. So it would be to seek help and, you know, seek information faster from people who you know are experts in it. Don't wait and try to do it yourself. It's not what got you to where you were, you know, staying in your lane kind of thing was uh, very important for me to recognize. Love it. Uh, What's the best piece of advice you can give investors? 
vet your sponsors and your syndicators, right? Ask questions. I think a lot of people are scared to ask questions for the fear of looking dumb. We see that a lot in this space, but you know, you're giving them your money. They need you more than you need them. And so I think it's fair for you to ask whatever, whenever, you know, as far as questions go, um, because then it just makes the expectation and the relationship stronger later on. You know, you don't feel left out of the loop for things, right? You feel clear-minded going into it. So I would say, make sure that you're completely understanding what you're getting into by asking questions before you go into it. Great. And Matt, how can our listeners reach you? So I'm honestly big on Instagram. So at Matt Bontrager on Instagram, feel free to DM me. That's where I share tax tips and just daily life. I'm a young dad with young kids. So that's another big role that I play here. But honestly, it would be our website too. So like if you're interested in working with us and things like that directly through our website, there's ways you can get a hold of us there the best. And what is your website? We'll publish it in the show notes, but just so if people are interested now. Yeah, so truebookscpa.com. Great. Well, Matt, once again, it was an absolute pleasure. I had a lot of fun. I can't believe I just had this much fun talking about taxes and accounting. With a CPA, right? Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm pumped up. <laughs> I'm pumped up, man. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, That's good. Well, well, have a fantastic day, Matt. Thanks, man. You too. Thank you for joining. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. And also follow and subscribe. One last thing, if you'd like to use us as a resource for anything real estate related, whether it's a second opinion on an opportunity you're analyzing or looking to explore new opportunities, we're here to help. Whether you do business with us or not, our company philosophy is to deliver as much value as possible and help people make better financial decisions. Book a strategy call with us today by visiting investav.com forward slash contact. We will discuss your investing goals, our investment opportunities, and share valuable insights as to what we see in the market today. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action.